the internet is changing. This isn't the first time a new technology has swept across the web, leaving a shockwave of concerns, debates, and excitement. But is it just me, or does generative AI feel different? AI is not new as a hot topic in tech, but in the past, it's mostly been a stand-in for some fancy algorithmic sleight of hand. With the advent of OpenAI's ChatGPT, we're seeing something new. The machines are evolving beyond remix and delivery machines to become the content creators themselves. Many anticipate that artificial intelligence will unlock possibilities for humanity that were previously confined to sci-fi stories. Others think a future with Iron Man's Jarvis is an existential threat to humanity. This is an, such an incredibly powerful technology that I've started calling it the nuclear weapons of software. Even founders in the AI space have concerns that the machines are learning too fast. Last week, an open letter asking all AI labs to immediately pause development for at least six months was signed by over 1,100 people, including tech industry royalty. Yes, some people find it fishy that many names on the list happen to also be direct competitors of OpenAI, but in raising the alarm, they've got a point. These burgeoning intelligences are learning from us, and it's unclear how it all works under the hood. But one thing we do know is that chatbots powered by this tech can lie and can do so convincingly. The machines don't have a concept of right and wrong. They're simply sorting through information, learning from billions of words within a data set, and playing a game of what word makes sense to come next after this one. A big problem with these AI chatbots is that they just sometimes get things wrong. What it's doing is just sort of reflecting back to us stuff that's already on the internet. It can sometimes combine different sources to produce claims that aren't actually true. When this happens, it's known as a hallucination. But if a user is led to believe that the all-knowing AI is trustworthy, you can see how this can spread misinformation like wildfire. I'm Daryl Etherington, and this is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we talk about the top stories in tech with the people who cover them. Today, to help us separate fact from AI-generated fiction is Devin Coldway. So... We talk a lot about AI all the time, but me and you both wrote articles this week about it. Definitely different perspectives, although not like mutually exclusive perspectives by any means. But mm -hmm. why don't we start off by just talking about what you wanted to highlight about AI and about what perhaps is lost on some people as they're caught up in this hype wave? Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I talked with a lot of people. Everybody's curious about AI. Everybody's talking about like, oh, it's scary. It's cool. It's interesting. But, you know, they're like, well, how does it know this? How does it know that? Like, how do we know whether it knows? You know, how do we know? We know. It's all in all these. And it starts getting really kind of philosophical. And there's a lot of interesting rabbit holes you can go down. And I think it's great that we're talking about those things because it's just fascinating topics to bring up at any time. But with the actual models that prompted these discussions, they have this quality that I kind of recognize i mean i was not the first to recognize this it's basically the quality of the stochastic parrots which is essentially that they don't know the difference between a right answer and an answer that resembles a right answer yeah like literally they do not know the difference they don't distinguish between those two things and that's why you get these weird answers where it's like 90 percent correct and then they make up a historical figure that wrote a paper about this in 1975 and you're like, why would you do that? Simply because the answer looks more correct when it has a citation like that. Because it's like, well, generally answers of this type, when a question that looks like this happens, 
an answer that looks like this happens. And part of that answer is usually a citation of this type. I'll satisfy the conditions of my training, which do not include like verifying that these things are all correct, but it just include fitting yeah. this form that I've been presented. Yeah, it's purely form-based. And sometimes the form and the function are the same thing. You know, like sometimes the answer that looks the most correct is the right answer. In fact, a lot of the time, and that's why they're so useful. Right. Because, you know, a lot of these things, you can ask simple questions, complex questions, and sometimes the answer that is the obvious answer that can be put together from the, you know, word association, you know, model that it, it has made is the right answer. And so they are very powerful and interesting in that way and very good at improvising fiction and like non-real stuff as well. But yeah, it's like they don't have any concept of truth or falsity. There's no concept of mm. fact or fiction or anything like that. It's only a matter of fitting the format of an answer. Yeah. Like that actually dovetails really nicely into what I wrote about because I wrote essentially about how, you know, this to me feels like something that is actually like a massive death blow to a lot of industries. Not to be negative, I don't because I think that whenever that happens, like other industries pop up. Like it's not like, oh well, now humans are useless. It's rather yeah. the type of work shifts, right? And I hope people took that away from my piece. But all the cases that I brought up, or most of the cases that I brought up, don't require essential truthfulness, right? Because they're essentially just like, it's sort of filler work in a knowledge worker capacity. It's like, what are the things yeah. that are in between the tasks that actually do require, you know, fact or whatever? Or you can present the fact, and then it will do the intermediary work of like formatting that in a way that is palatable to all involved. So it's basically perfect for this kind of thing, because it's strictly form work. It is not really content work or substance work, right? Well, it's easy to think of examples of that through history and other, you know, places where automation or just, you know, industrial movement has changed and obsoleted certain kinds of work because, you know, if it can be automated, it will be. Mm. And yeah, I don't think that it is controversial when you're like, well, what part of this widget making process, like right now we're making millions of iPhones, right? But people still make the iPhones. They just don't, they don't hand lithograph the things you know we have a machine that does that at a you know nanometer scale because it no longer is something that needs to be or can be done by people but people still like we don't have robots that are smart enough or agile enough to do a lot of the things that people do and it's the same with knowledge work there's still a lot of stuff that requires the ingenuity or agility and you know of course we flatter ourselves that our jobs are that and everybody flatters themselves that their job requires that but yeah the truth is some don't. And in fact, some of what we do probably doesn't either. And maybe it'll be nice to get it off our backs, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the element for me that becomes the question of like, well, how much of an existential shift is this going to prompt is how surmountable do you think that last problem is? So the problem of actually ensuring that these things have a measure and an ability to like account for veracity, basically. Because now that we talk about it, here, it to me feels a lot like when you were talking about like manufacturing robots, right? What we've realized is a lot of those things are incredibly hard to do, especially mm -hmm. things that just seem incredibly simple to a human being, right? Like, hey, go pick up that thing over there and then bring it over here and put it in there. And it's like, okay, no problem. But to get a robot to do that is actually a, almost an insurmountably hard task, right? Yeah, years of research still spend yeah. like billions of dollars invested and they still, you know, crap out every single time. It's amazing. So do you think this is equivalent on like the knowledge and information side? Like, do you think that that is a gap that will take 
many, many iterations of this technology and possibly decades, if not more, to cross? Or do you think it's actually something that we could see solved in relatively few generations of products like these? Well, it's very hard to predict, right? Because, you know, if, if it was, you know, 50 years ago, you might predict like, oh, obviously we won't have assembly line workers right. in 50 years because we'll all be, you know, in our flying cars and the robots will be doing all the real work. But we neglected to account for, you know, a million things, not just the difficulty of the problem, but, uh, you know, who does the work? Like, it may be easy to get an AI model to do some of these things, but it may also just be cheaper if you need to do them in bulk to pay a bunch of people in a, you know, a country where the people are starving, you can pay them pennies to do that work for you. Because we've already, we've already shown that companies will do that instead. Yep. They'll do whatever is cheap. But, I mean, that's all sort of by the by. I think that it's very difficult to say which of the problems, you know, like, oh, writing an article. Like, okay, it's not just, you can't just say like, oh, can an AI write an article that's, you know, as good as something I write? It's like, well, I mean, sometimes, sure. Like some of my articles suck or like are really simple and an AI could probably do a better job. But then there are some that, you know, it could never be written by an AI because it's completely an opinion formed out of my own mind and possibly an original one. So I think that there are going to be some, some sort of steep some islands in the ocean of AI capabilities, but it's very hard to say what they will be or how AI will affect them and make them more difficult or more easy. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point about the opinions, right? Because that's something that as much as it can create a facsimile of that, like we are realizing now like those things, that's not within the realm of capability. It's essentially just an advanced remix, even though it looks on the surface like it is an actual like original thought that perhaps the thing has generated. Yeah, I, it's funny because this is where you get into some of those thorny intellectual debates, which are actually super interesting. Noam Chomsky has already weighed in and is like, you know, this AI is garbage. It doesn't know actually know anything. And I happen to agree with him. But some people would say like, look, what is the difference between like if, if you ask a system 100 questions and it gives 100 answers and those answers are indistinguishable from human answers then who is to say that that system does not possess intelligence right. for some definition of intelligence and some definition of possess? And you can argue about those definitions, but it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility. The way it was with something like Siri, yes, where absolutely. it truly is not intelligent. It was no. just it's just like it's a natural language interface for a program. Yeah, and so people don't realize that Siri, Siri is literally just a database retrieval mechanism like it it has Mm -hmm. nothing more sophisticated than that right we've heard recently i think some of the original siri engineers have talked about what it was and it's basically an ever-expanding database of like for this specific query return the specific result you know just and that's why it's so slow and stupid is because it's basically that being built and being built ever more large and cumbersome what's funny is that we've been told that this is ai for the last 10 years they've been like oh the ai does this the ai does that it's not, I mean, and they knew there was nothing AI about it. And it has sort of badly prepared people for what I, I sort of am hesitating to call real AI, you know, with big punctuation marks with my fingers here. Mm-hmm. But it's more AI than Siri, certainly. And it is, it's not thinking exactly. It is still, you know, a statistical probability thing and with a voice interface, essentially. But it's definitely a lot closer to what we think of as AI than the AI things that they've been saying, like, oh, the AI will let you make a map to whatever destination with your voice. It's like, that's not an AI. That's natural language processing that's Googling something for me. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing these definitions in play and shifting because it's not just 
that there's no good definition, but that the definitions themselves are changing as we decide what constitutes intelligence or AI or all these things. It's fascinating to watch. So I do have, this is me being probably ignorant of other people's position, but I think it's one of the first times where something has impacted like field that I work in, in the way that say maybe the printing press affected the field of like typesetters or whatever, like people, not typesetters, but the lithograph, whatever operators, I don't know what (laughs) came from before, but you know what I mean? Like the scriptoriums in monasteries. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Put a bunch of monks out of a job. But what, like, what do you think is the course of action there? Like, what do you think people should think about or do or whatever in fields where their jobs might be affected? Like, I think we've talked about previously offline about how marketing copywriting especially the bulk of it that just needs to be sort of pedestrian and day-to-day rather than like the um, Mad Men style, like, oh, come up with something that's amazing and there's a campaign that, you know, like Coca-Cola wants to buy or something. But the day-to-day, like, I need copy from my website. Like, this stuff can do a lot of that effectively now, but there are a lot of people doing those jobs now and that's the bulk of their work, right? So what would you say to those people or like, what do you think about if you try to put yourself in their position? The way I would think about it is, although that part of a job is threatened, these people still have expertise in that area. Like deciding what is good copy and what is bad copy or what copy needs, you know, in order to be persuasive or reflect brand guidelines or whatever. Like some of those things you can teach the AI. And in fact, there are startups like Writer that are focusing on that. But there's some stuff that is still difficult for it to do. And, you know, like the human touch is still required. But I think that the important part is to embrace it as a tool, because if it's going to be used one way or the other, like learning how to use it is taking control of your own destiny. I saw a woman speaking at the Afrotech conference last week who was like, everybody who is afraid of AI is afraid because they're being told they're going to lose their job. They're being told their power is being taken away from them. But it's not up to the creators of these tools, what the tools are used for or who uses them. She was like, when you're being told to be afraid of something, you should be rushing to meet it and grabbing it with both hands and turning it to your own purposes. So if you're a copywriter right now or a freelance writer or someone like that, and you're like, oh, my God, GPT-4 is going to put me out of a job. You're like, think about it more like, how can GPT-4 make my job easier? I could take on 10 times as many clients and you know improve my copy, or I could become a prompt engineer and get a job paying a quarter of a million dollars at a marketing agency you know like it's new and weird opportunities but i think that thinking about it as a tool to embrace rather than a threat to be you know to cower in the face of Mm. is the fundamental starting position yeah that makes a lot of sense i think there's there's a natural human reluctance to that or there's something you have to overcome though right because i think that at least this is me speaking very from personal experience but i think this is something that applies to a lot of people like If there's something like that that comes along, like it almost feels too big or scary or whatever to even attempt to do anything about. And so an inclination, I think, for a lot of people would be, well, I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing and pretend that thing isn't there (laughs) until it swallows me whole, right? Well, you know, and that's, it's true. But I think what a lot of people are waiting for is permission to engage with these things. Mm. They feel that there's some sort of gate keeping them from embracing, from learning how to do AI. But everybody in the AI field learned everything they know in the last two years, basically. Like 90% of the people in the field are like completely rewriting their knowledge every year because it's moving so fast. 
why isn't one of those people you? Like, no one is going to give you permission. Give yourself permission to embrace this in whatever way is good for you. And you may be the, you know, multi-billionaire building the next big model. I mean, I don't want to be all aspirational about it, but like realistically, if you don't give yourself permission to go towards something instead of away from it, no one else is going to give you that permission because they want everyone to get out of the way. Yeah, I mean, that's great advice. And I think it's something I will probably take to heart myself, honestly, Devin. All right, this won't be the last time we talk about this, I'm sure, Devin, but thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Next, here are the headlines from this week. More creators than ever are looking to get paid for what they do. One platform that helps with that fanfic says it has over 10 million users and is paying out $70,000 annually on average to their active creators. The company says it's paid out a total of $11 million thus far and looks to be positioned to ramp that to $50 million by the end of this year. More from Lauren Forrestal on TechCrunch. SpaceX is gearing up to test its next big spaceship for its first orbital flight. Filing with the FAA cited April 10th as a possible launch date, and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk also tipped the day on Twitter. As the date approaches, it looks less and less likely SpaceX will have all the other approvals and process it needs ready to go for Monday, but the company is clearly eager to get Starship up to space sometime in the near future. More from Arya Alamohodii on TechCrunch. In the ongoing chaotic Twitter saga, Elon changed the home icon of the social network to the iconic Doge meme image, The Doge shift seemed to maybe be a late April Fool's joke or possibly an attempt to goose the price of Dogecoin, which did blast off following the move. It's still there now and doesn't appear to be going anywhere, which means something, nothing, who knows? More on TechCrunch from Alex Wilhelm and Amanda Silverling. In very sad news this week, MobileCoin Chief Product Officer Bob Lee was stabbed and killed in San Francisco. The 43-year-old tech executive was well-known in the startup community and previously helped create Android at Google and the Cash App when he was CTO at Square. You can read more on Lee and his legacy on TC from Romain Diet. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all of the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com. Also, I'm going to TechCrunch Early Stage in Boston. That's happening on April 20th. So come out and join me and save yourself some money by using the code TCPOD, all one word, for a 40% discount on founder and investor passes for the event. That's again on April 20th, and we'll be there live and in person recording an episode of Found, one of the other podcasts here on the TechCrunch Network. And as always, don't miss the other TC podcasts, including Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll see you next week. The TechCrunch Podcast is hosted by myself, Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development. And Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.